Let's pray together. God in heaven, even as we even as we sing of how great your love is, Lord, I pray that we would believe it. And that as we dive into your word this morning, that we would see it and hear it and know it. That we would that we would trust the never stopping, never giving up, unfailing, unbreaking, always and forever love of God in Jesus. As we hear from Hosea this morning. May we be convinced of two things. That we are great sinners. And that you are an even greater Savior. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So, <clears throat> first of all, let me say this. Uh, thank you to the Holmes and to Chris. Um, Becky is taking a well-deserved sabbatical. Uh, so she's getting a long break, which means that over the next few weeks, people are going to be filling in. Uh, those are big shoes to fill, but thank you to... To those who are doing it, then Jake, of course, is taking a well-deserved vacation this weekend. So that's why, that's why the B team is up here, just so you know. Uh, but have you, have you ever gotten into a project that you thought was going to be a quick one? Right? You thought, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead, I'm going to do this, I'm going to knock it out, and be done. And then about four hours later, you realize you weigh underestimated how much time this project was going to take, right? I'm looking at Aaron because I know that happens to him a lot, Um, right? So I had this idea a while back, a few months ago, um, actually from reading the the prophet Isaiah, I I mean, not Isaiah, Hosea, I said, uh, the next sermon series I preach is going to be in the minor prophets. Now, these these guys, these are the, uh, the 12, the last 12 books in your Old Testament, Okay. And they're not minor because their messages are unimportant. They're minor because their books are small. All right? So it starts with Hosea and ends with Malachi. And I had this idea, like, I'm going to preach a sermon through the minor prophets. One sermon on each book. Four hours later, I realized that was probably not the best idea. But here we are with that disclaimer. That's my goal, is to still preach one sermon on this book and on the next... 12 books, as I, or next 11, as I have opportunity to preach. And the goal is this, to get the, the overarching message of Hosea. What, what Hosea was preaching to his people at his time, and what that means for us. Okay? So as we go to the Minor Prophets, that's the goal. Now, that, there's going to be lots of things that probably get left out in the midst. That's what happens when you just preach one sermon on 12 chapters. Okay? Or 14 chapters is Hosea. So... That said, if you'll turn in your Bibles to the book of Hosea, if you haven't already. He's small, so you might miss him. If you hit Isaiah, keep turning, you'll hit Jeremiah. Those are big books. Skip over a little book called Lamentations. You'll hit Ezekiel. That's another big book. Then Daniel, and then Hosea. If you get to Joel, Amos, Jonah, you've gone too far. Go backwards. Or if you're using your iPad... All that flipping is it's just really easy. You just go straight to 
Hosea. And while you're turning there, you can't, you can't preach the minor prophets, right? You can't talk about these guys without first kind of getting the lay of the land. Where are we in history, right? So Jake has been preaching in 1 Samuel. All of these events in 1 Samuel lead up to David becoming king. That happens in 1000 B.C. David is followed by Solomon. After Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits into two. Okay? The southern kingdom is called Judah. And there are two tribes. Right? There are 12 tribes of Israel altogether. When they split, the southern kingdom called Judah has two tribes. They have Jerusalem. So they have the temple. They have the way God has, has told them how to worship. They have God's, in a sense, they have God's presence in the temple. They also have David's sons. They have the Davidic king, which is also what God had promised. All right? Now, that doesn't mean that they were the better kingdom. If you read through the books of the kings, you'll see that there were really bad kings in Judah, and it cost them. All right? So that's one kingdom. The northern kingdom is called Israel. That's kind of confusing. Okay? But the northern kingdom is called Israel. It's made up of ten tribes. All right? And their first king, Jeroboam, in, so, that, so that his people, he said this, he said, I don't want my people going south to Jerusalem. I don't want them offering their worship at the temple. So I'm going to set up two rival sites. And what he did, see if this sounds familiar, he made golden calves. And he said, Israel, this, this is your God. This is the God who rescued you out of Egypt. You're going to worship. This is, this is where you're going to worship him. Now, that's a bad idea, right? Um, because God, like the second commandment says, don't make any images, right? Don't worship me by, by, by the works of your hands, okay? And that's exactly what Israel did, right? While they were still at Mount Sinai, they made a golden calf. So we've been here before. But we're pragmatists in worship, and we say, well, if this is what works, then who cares what God says? And so that's what Israel does. They build these rival sites, and that's where they worship. So if you can't tell, things are going downhill fast. From this point, both kingdoms decline, and they will eventually be wiped out. All right? But things are far worse in the northern kingdom. They have several different kings. Things are really unstable, and they will crash much sooner. All right? And that's why God sends in the prophets. Okay? Um, Now, all that happened, that that split happened in 930 B.C. Hosea is sent around 780 B.C. So we've had almost 200 years of unbelief and idolatry. And that's why the prophets are sent in. Okay? These prophets are God's messengers. That's their job description. God speaks to them and they speak to the people. And they deliver a message. And that message usually consists of judgment and hope. And each of the prophets is different. Their focus is different. But here's what, um, here's what Hosea's message is. God's love for his people is fierce and unbreakable. All right? God's love for his people is fierce and unbreakable. That's, that's Hosea's message in a nutshell. So first, let's look at this. Let's look at 
And I haven't, I haven't read a passage yet because we're actually going to read different sections as we go through this prophecy, okay, this book. Um, but let's first talk about this. God's fierce love judges the spiritual adultery of his people. Now, we don't want to connect those two things. In our minds, right, love is over here and judgment is over here. Those two things do not go together. But what Hosea says, right, what we say is love doesn't judge. Right, in our, in our culture, in our time, we say, no, 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 love, love and judgment can't go together. Love does not judge. Well, let me ask you, husbands, if your wife leaves and goes and marries another man, is, that, is there not judgment there? Does your love not judge? Parents, if your children rebel, and I mean rebel in the worst way, there is, there is judgment there, right? The, the lover is spurned. And that's, and that's the impression, that's the message that God gives us. Hosea tells us about a love that is strong, a love that is holy, and it will not tolerate rivals. Okay? So let's look and see what he says to Hosea. Hosea 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of harlotry. And have children conceived in harlotry. For the land commits great harlotry by forsaking the Lord. That's pretty uncomfortable, right? Hosea's message is one that makes you squirm a little bit, makes you want to put your ears over your I mean put your hands over your children's ears. But this is but this is God talking. Right? This is his word. This is how he describes his people, right? As the New English translation says, go marry a prostitute who will bear illegitimate children conceived through prostitution because the nation continually commits spiritual prostitution by turning away from the Lord. You know, if you're, if you're in the hospital and you're on death's door... You don't want the physician who's going to sugarcoat it, right? You don't want the doctor who's going, to, who's going to play it easy and just say, oh, no, 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 everything's fine. You're going to be just fine. You want the physician who's going to be honest, right? You want the, you want the doctor who's going to say, here's your problem, and he's going to be honest about it. And more importantly, he's going to say, and here's your cure. That's Hosea. He's blunt, but he's honest, and he points us to where we have to, what we have to see. Now, what's crazy is that nobody else in Hosea's day saw this. Maybe some other prophets, okay? The society as a whole, they thought they were fine. The country was wealthy. People were prosperous. There weren't any enemies banging down the gates, right? Things were stable. Peace and prosperity were the words of the day. At least until you looked under the surface. And under the surface, what we see is a widening gap between rich and poor, where the rich are getting richer at the expense of the poor. We see that justice is flouted. 
that there's corruption in politics and in the temple. And what's underneath all of that, as Hosea says, is Israel's messy, messed up spiritual life. Right? Contributing to all of that, all of that mess is idolatry. Right? Worship of God had become mixed with a worship of a God called Baal. B-A-A-L. And that's called syncretism, right? Syncretism is where you take a little bit of this religion and you put it in the blender. And you take a little bit of that religion and you put it in the blender. And then maybe you find a sprinkle of stuff over here. You cap it and you push the button. And you say, this is how we're going to worship. And so... Not only were they already off base, not worshiping the Lord, but now they're throwing this whole Baal worship in there too. And Hosea comes after them, right? That's, that's the reality that, God, that Hosea wakes up to daily. Greed, murder, strife, a culture in decline. But spiritual prostitution? I mean, isn't that, isn't that a little strong? Why does, he, why does God say that? And the reason is this, that God has a special bond with Israel, right? Out of all the nations in the world, Deuteronomy 7 tells us that God chose Israel to love. He made promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. He saved them, gave them his law, made them a nation. God loves Israel, and the Bible calls that a covenant, right? Where God bound himself to this, this people, and they agreed to be bound to God. And the promise that goes with that, the summary promise of the whole thing is this. You've probably heard it before. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the summary promise of the covenant. Over and over, God again and again reminds his people, I will be your God, and you will be my people. But there's also... There's also a warning that goes with the covenant. And from the very beginning, God laid it out. To keep the covenant means to experience God's blessing. But to reject the covenant means to invite God's curse. And so that's what we see taking place in Hosea. God has been patient for hundreds of years. But they have invited the curse. And he will plead through men like Isaiah and Hosea and Amos. And they will not listen. And so the curse will come. Look, look, how, look how he describes it in the life of Hosea. Um, chapter 1, verse 3. So God tells him who to go marry. And, he, and it says this. So he went... And took Gomer, the daughter of Dibliam, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Now, there's a lot of history there. But basically what God is, Jehu's house ruled Israel for a long time. What God is saying is, at Jezreel, you will be defeated. The kingdom of Israel will come to nothing. Keeps going. 
Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name Lo-Ruhamah, no mercy. For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah. And I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Verse 8, when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name Lo-Ami, not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Remember that promise? That, That summary promise, I will be your God and you will be my people? Now God is saying, I'm ready to reject you. You have grieved me. And I am done with you. Now, our danger is that we imagine the people in Hosea's day, right? We imagine them to be really awful people who do really awful things and have done them for a really, really long time. But did you hear how I described Hosea's day? Wealthy, comfortable, peaceful, prosperous with cultural decay right underneath the surface? Does that sound a little bit familiar? People playing spiritual games with the living God by adding in worship of other things. Now, we, we may not be bowing the knee to Baal, but we are bowing the knee at many other altars. And what Hosea says is that God's love is fierce and jealous And he loves his people, and he will not tolerate rivals to that love. We cannot hold hands with two husbands and expect everything to be okay. Right? God is jealous for the people he loves. See, that's why marriage is such a fitting picture, because marriage is a covenant, right? It's the one relationship we enter into that's exclusive. And so we, when we think God's judgment functions apart from his love, what we're really seeing here is a broken-hearted, angry husband. He wants his wife to come back. He wants her to see her error. And what Hosea is telling us is that we cannot take the love of God lightly. Israel was comfortable, but her comfort was coming to an end. Assyria would come, and she would come warring and killing and burning and conquering. Israel would lose their king. They would lose their land. They would lose their homes. Read with me in chapter 2, verse 11. Here's how God describes it. And I will put an end to all her mirth, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I will lay waste her vines and her fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. And I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals, when she burned offerings to them, and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry, and went after her lovers, and forgot me, declares the Lord. 
That's what idolatry buys us, right? Spiritual prostitution always buys grief and pain for promised joy. Or as James says, desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin, and sin when it is fully grown brings forth death. No wonder the prophets weren't very popular people. That was the message they had to preach about a God whose fierce love had been offended and now he was going to bring judgment. But that's never the end of the prophet's message. In every single prophet, you have judgment, but right after judgment comes hope. Because where the God of the Bible is concerned, cursing never has the last word. Blessing does. Judgment is never the end. Hope is. Let's look at these verses. Go back to chapter 1, verse 10. This is right after he has has just said, You are not my people. And he says this, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered, And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one leader. I wonder who that'll be. And they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Call your brothers a me, my people. And call your sisters mercy, for you have received mercy. How beautiful is the grace of God that he, he reverses the curse. He takes no mercy and renames her mercy. He takes not my people, renames him my people. He turns Jezreel from a name of, of sorrow and destruction into a name of joy. But there's more. Chapter 2, verse 14. Just after God has said, I will punish her for going after other lovers and forgetting me, God tells us why. He says in verse 14, Behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. Literally speak to her heart. And there I will give her back her vineyards and make the valley of trouble a gateway of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. God says, let's begin again. Let's start over. This barren place, this valley of trouble, I'm going to make it into a A luscious place, a valley, a doorway to hope. He says in verse 16, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Now the word Baal also meant master or Lord. It was a common title for a husband. Okay? But God is saying here that in that day, you won't use that title anymore. Why? 
because I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. The only name I want you to remember is husband. Verse 19, And I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens, and they shall answer the earth, and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, and the oil. What he's saying is, I will return to you all of the things I have taken away. And they shall answer Jezreel, and I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. I will betroth you to me forever. In righteousness and justice and steadfast love and mercy, all the things that were missing all of the sins they had committed that had broken the relationship, God says, we're going to start over. I'm going to make a new covenant. And all of the things that you're missing, I'll make right. Who doesn't want that? The question is, all right, so we have these two, we really have a conflict because God has made these promises I will be your God and you will be my people. But then here we have him saying, you are no longer my people and I am no longer your God. So how does God reconcile those two things? How can the God who made this everlasting covenant and promised these good things still keep his promise while the people reject him? Hosea chapter 3. And the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman, love your wife, who is loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. So I bought her, I traded for her, for fifteen shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man, so will I also be to you. For the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Right? All of the things that they chased after, all of these religious ceremonies and festivals, he says, there's going to be a time, right? You're in exile, you won't have them. After that time, afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God, and David their king. And they shall come in fear to the Lord, and to his goodness in the latter days. God tells Hosea, he says, Go again, love your wife, even though she loves another man. Can you, can you imagine? Can you imagine how humiliated Hosea would be? I mean, it was bad enough the first time, right? This is a prophet. This is a man of God. And, and he is told, go marry this woman who lots of people know for all the wrong reasons. The whispers, the gossip, a prophet marrying a prostitute. But that's, that's what God tells him to do. Can you imagine Hosea's shame? And then she leaves. 
She goes back into her previous line of work. And it looks like here, she's now been sold into slavery. So she's on the auction block. Her shame on display in the town square for all to see. And God says, go again. Love your wife. Bring her back. Buy her. Can you imagine Hosea's humiliation as he has to walk into the square to buy his own wife to trade for her as she's auctioned off to the highest bidder? But that's exactly... Tell me you see Jesus in that. Because the gospel isn't just that God welcomes home his rebellious people. The gospel is that he comes and he gets us and he carries us home. Just like Hosea had to face the humiliation of walking into that square and buying back his own wife, the king of heaven faces the humiliation of becoming his own creature. But he's better than Hosea. Instead of trading a few silver coins and some barley, he trades his life. And actually what he does, instead of buying, he actually becomes the harlot paraded through the streets of Jerusalem, his shame and nakedness on display for all to see. See, the gospel says that God became man and took on our sin. Him who knew no sin became sin for us. On the cross, Jesus becomes the harlot so that we can be clothed in the righteousness and purity and holiness of God. The groom takes the shame of his adulterous bride so that she can be freed from her sin and cleared of her shame. That's the message of Hosea for us. And that's how God keeps his promise. That's how those who are not my people get to become my people. That's how we can say, you are my God. Because the blessing of God reverses the curse. Let me be blunt. I am the harlot. And so are you. And all the lovers we crave cannot make good on their promises. Have you met the Redeemer? The one whose fierce and unbreakable love enters into your sin, enters into your shame, pays for it with His own blood, and brings you all the way home? I invite you, just as Hosea invited his listeners, in chapter 14, Return, O Israel, to the Lord. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. And he says, I will heal heal their apostasy. I will love them freely. For my anger has turned from them. Let's pray.
Father, we don't know loves that are unfailing. Even our best human loves pale in comparison to your unbreakable love. God, we're glad that you don't tolerate rivals. Because that means you want us. That means you want to draw us. You want to allure us. You want to speak tenderly to us. You don't want to, you don't want to reject us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for bearing our sin and shame so that we can become the righteousness of God. Help us to believe and trust in a love like this. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.